Amen. Well, with all those uh, requests on our hearts and our minds, um, we have a perfect passage to go to tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles, and as I promised last week, we're going to continue in our series on this uh, great uh, Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes, that we started this past spring and uh, never finished it out before summer hit. And so, Lord willing, this fall we're going to finish it out here. And um, I thought that um, as we uh, begin tonight, I would tell you how during my days of seminary, I developed a a great fascination and appreciation for the Puritans. And you probably know that because I quote from them often. I'm often recommending books by Puritans. We have a lot of Puritan books in our resource center. But I was so intrigued by the Puritans that I asked one of the professors uh, if I could do a directive study where I basically had the opportunity to, to write my own curriculum and uh, design my own class that would just give me an opportunity to be exposed to these men. And uh, so I just assigned myself a ton of reading and uh, just read through over a thousand pages of their original sources. And uh, over the years now, I've, I've acquired a, a significant number of books written about the Puritans and written by Puritans. And it's really become one of my, my favorite um, treasured sections in my library. Kind of a couple shelves there that I really, uh, you know, are my favorites. And the titles of the Puritan books alone, I think, communicate uh, that these guys lived at a different level. Um, they were way more spiritually mature than I'll ever be. Um, for example, here are some uh, title samples. An alarm to the unconverted, heaven taken by storm, precious remedies against Satan's devices, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, the almost Christian discovered. In fact, I had a very dear friend, he's, I assume, a pastor still today, and I met up with him one time and he said, man, I've been reading this book by Matthew Mead, this, this Puritan called The Almost Christian Discovered. And he said, man, I'm wondering if I'm truly saved. And this is like one of the most committed, radical, on fire for Jesus guys I've ever met. And he was really wrestling with assurance of his salvation, reading through this book called The Almost Christian Discovered. Well, one of, one of the Puritan books that I have on my shelf is this one right here. It's called The Crook in the Lot. The crook in the lot, not like a crook, like a criminal crook, a burglar crook, but like a crooked, right? Something that's crooked in the lot. And the subtitle, they always have these really long subtitles. Uh, It's called The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. The Sovereignty and Wisdom of God Displayed in the Afflictions of Men. This book was written by Thomas Boston, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister, theologian who faithfully shepherded a small church for 25 years. And uh, this particular uh, pastor was often in poor health. Uh, His wife suffered from chronic illness. Uh, But what it was perhaps this godly couple's greatest trial was the death of their children. Uh, they, They lost six of their 10 babies. Just imagine that. And rather than get bitter at God, and abandon their faith or drop out of the ministry, Thomas Boston turned to the Lord for help and comfort, and he found solace in God's sovereignty. And the crook in the lot was one of the last resources that he published before he died, and it really is just a a classic sermon that he preached on the sovereignty of God based on the command and the question in one of the verses that is in our text tonight. Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13. Solomon writes, Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Or in some of your translations, it probably says, For who is able to straighten what he has made what? Crooked. Now the main point of this sermon that Brooks or excuse me, Boston, Thomas Boston, uh, preached, is, is summarized in this quote from the book. Listen carefully. 
there's a certain train or course of events by the providence of God falling to every one of us during our life in this world. And that is our lot as being allotted to us by the sovereign God. So in other words, all of us have a sovereign lot in life, right? That God has ordained for us. He said, by and by, there is some incident which alters that course, grates us and pains us. Everybody's lot in this world has some crook in it. There is no perfection here, no lot out of heaven without a crook. And therefore, the title, The Crook in the Lot, the sovereignty and wisdom of God displayed in the afflictions of men. His point is this, that we all have our lot in life, and there are things in all of our lives, problems, afflictions, difficulties, limitations, frustrations that we wish were different or that we could change. Do I hear an amen? But we can't. One commentator said it this way, we have something that we wish we did not have, or we do not have something we wish we did. Anybody relate to that? I guarantee everyone in this room has either something that they wish they did not have, or they don't have something they wish they did. Raise your hand if one of those things is true of you, right? It's true of all of us. Sooner or later, there is something in life that we wish had a different shape to it, And then he asks this question, what is the one thing that you would change in your life if you had the power to change it? If you could change anything in your life, if you had the power to do it, what would it be? Well, the point is, there are things in our lives that we can't change because they are exactly the way God ordained them to be, and they must remain permanently bent or crooked. Now, I think you know this about me by now. I'm a perfectionist. Be nice, okay? My wife's not here to say amen to that. But, but I, pers- I, I hate stuff that's bent or crooked. How about you? Right? I walk into a room and there's a picture kind of cockeyed on the wall. What am I going to do? I'm going to walk up and I'm going to straighten that thing because I don't like crooked pictures, Right? If I, if, I, if I go to buy something at the store that has to do with being straight or bent, I'll grab it and I'll look down the, 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 the distance of it to make sure it's not crooked or bent. I want something that's straight, right? I like neat straight lines. You want to mess with me? Walk into my office and, and move something, okay? It happens every, every time the cleaners come in. I walk in and I'm like, hey, somebody's been in my office. And stuff's all over the place. I'm going around straightening everything, putting it all back where it's supposed to go. My daughter comes by it rightly as well. When we tell her, we warn Hannah, we threaten Hannah that we're going to walk into a room and just, just move something out of place and, and don't let her change it. Like, you're not allowed to touch it. You've got to leave it out of place. Um, well, she inherited that from her daddy, right? But I tend to get irritated or depressed when things aren't perfect in my life. Anybody relate to that? And for me personally, one of the most convicting principles that I've been learning uh, from the study of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Life is not perfect. Get over it and enjoy it. Life is not perfect. Get over it, right, and enjoy it. And that's even hard for me to say, let alone do. I'm like, why does life have to be that way? I want it to be perfect, and I don't want to get over it. And I won't enjoy it unless it is perfect. And now some, some people would say, well, that sounds kind of pessimistic, right? Life's not perfect, get over it. You know, almost maybe even fatalistic. But that's a realistic view of life that is presented to us by Solomon here in his personal journal that we know today as the book of Ecclesiastes. And I provided a, a, another copy of this outline. If you didn't grab it when you came in, it's on the back table. You, you can feel free to grab it if you want right now. But uh, this is just a quick overview of, of the book of Ecclesiastes and, and really just uh, an outline that we're following as we work our way through it. But one thing that sticks out here, and I've purposely put it in bold lettering here, is this recurring theme of enjoying the gift of life. Enjoy the gift of life. Enjoy the gift of life. Enjoy the gift of life. In the midst of what 
many say is the most depressing book in the entire Bible, you have these exhortations, these admonitions, these encouragements to enjoy life. And so really, rather than being a downer, right, a bummer, uh, really the book of Ecclesiastes is a celebration of life. And it's really how to enjoy life in an imperfect world is what it is. Let's just face it, our world is imperfect. Our world is broken. It's messed up. How do you enjoy life in a messed up world, in, a, in an imperfect world, in a broken world? And we've been learning that in the first six chapters, Solomon described what life is like without God. And it's a pretty dismal picture, isn't it? Um, from chapter 7 on, the focus becomes more... Uh, or less man-centered and more God-centered. Uh, in the first part of his memoirs, we, we've seen how he described his foolish, futile quest to find meaning and satisfaction and happiness in life apart from God. And now in these last, the last part of his memoirs, we're going to see how he described uh, how he wised up. We talked about that last week, how to wise up, right? How he wised up and returned to the Lord. And one evidence of this, of this shift in Solomon's perspective is the frequent occurrences in, in the latter half of the book of the words wise and wisdom that appear almost 35 times in these last chapters. In fact, chapter 7, as you'll notice, opens with a series of Proverbs that offer a godly perspective on dealing with life, very similar to the book of Proverbs. This is another evidence, I think, of why we should believe that and hold to the fact that Solomon actually wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. There's some that would argue that, but here are some Proverbs that are really identical, uh, very similar to the book of Proverbs. Um, and basically what these Proverbs are in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 7, he, he's basically following up the rhetorical question that he asked at the end of chapter 6. Now, it's been a while, it's been several months since we uh, wrapped up chapter 6, so let me just remind you that chapter 6 is one of the darkest, most depressing chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes and possibly the entire Bible, okay? One of the things that disillusions people the most about life is all the mysteries, all the puzzles that seem to make no sense and seem to have no solution. And so when we face the perplexing problems in our lives, it sometimes makes us wonder if life is even worth living. That's his point at the beginning of this chapter. And so Solomon here was in chapter 6 was trying to unravel some of the mysteries of life and he listed a series of frustrations and disappointments that he experienced in his own life and that left him questioning what life was really all about. And if you remember, we said there was three frustrations of life without God. In other words, if you don't know God then these three things will frustrate you throughout your entire life and make you wish you were dead or worse, that you were never born. You say, what are they? Well, number one, without God, life's blessings cannot be enjoyed. You're just constantly frustrated. You even, God blesses you and you can't even enjoy His blessings. Number two, without God, life's cravings cannot be satisfied. You're always trying to find something else uh, to satisfy your heart. And then lastly, without God, life's questions cannot be answered. And notice verse 11. For there are many words, this is chapter 6, for there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? In other words, we have a limited ability to, to fathom the present, and we have no ability to foresee the future, which leaves us with many unanswered questions about life and death. Right? What are our two most important questions of life? Where, why am I here and where am I going, right? So the point is, what good is my life accomplishing? What will happen to me when my life is over? These are the questions we ask ourselves, and when we look at life from a purely earthly perspective under the sun... Right as Solomon has used that phrase, under the sun, life under the sun, that was life without God. It poses plenty of questions, but it provides no real answers. But when you wisely look at life 
beyond the sun or above the sun, and you realize there is a God who has a perfect plan for your life, that's the only way to avoid becoming cynical and skeptical about life. And while your life will never be perfect, you can live with the confidence that God's plan for your life is perfect. Can I say that again? Okay, while your life will never be perfect, you can live with the confidence that God's plan for your life is perfect. In fact, God's perfect plan includes the imperfections in our lives, the things that frustrate us, the things that irritate us, um, the things that we wish we could change. God's perfect plan includes the imperfections in our lives that tend to frustrate and depress us. We think we know what's good for us, but God knows better. And so Solomon makes that point here in these, in these first 14 verses of chapter 7. And I think it's interesting the words good and better occur in these 14 verses more times than in any other chapter in the Old Testament. Notice verse 1, a good name is what? Better than good ointment. Verse uh, 1 again, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Verse 5, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the songs of fools. Verse 8, the end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of, of spirit. And then verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? And ultimately, the point of this section is, is in verse 13 and 14. Notice he says twice, consider, verse 13, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent, the crook and the lot, right? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So ultimately, the point is this, is to consider the fact that God doesn't just know what's better, He knows what's best. He knows what's best. And He knows that it's often the bad things, the difficult things, the hard things, the frustrating things in our lives that are the most beneficial and prove to be the most effective in helping us become who He wants us to be. And so Solomon challenges us here to consider how pain and how adversity is better than peace and prosperity for perfecting us. What, what is typically more effective in, in perfecting us? Is it times of prosperity or times of adversity? Times of adversity. And so he goes on here and this, he kind of lists some of the good things that come from affliction. He asks the question, what is in verse 12 of chapter 6, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? He says, I'll tell you what's good. This is what's good. Verse 1, a good name is better than good ointment. A good name obviously means a good reputation is better than good ointment, perfume, cologne, which was a, a valuable commodity in, in, in those days. And Solomon's point is simply this, that that the most expensive perfume can never take the place of an honorable life. And I think you know this, but we're responsible for our reputation. Right? We can't blame anyone else for our reputation. Well, why do people think that about me? It's not fair that they have that. Well, guess what? Whatever reputation you have, you earned. You earned. And we have to understand that every word that we say, every act that we do either builds up our reputation or tears down our reputation. And so the question we should ask ourselves is when people think of us, what words come to their minds? When someone thinks of you, okay, if I was to pick out somebody, Vibe Mixon, sorry, you're the first one I saw, okay? So this is, yeah, she's climbing under the chair now. Okay, seriously, what, if, somebody, if, if somebody thought of you, they think of your name, I say your name, what is the first word that comes to their mind? What are some of the characteristics that they know to be true of you? 
Do you have a reputation of being loving, being kind, gracious, Christ-like, or selfish, prideful, critical? Do people know you to be a generous person or a stingy person? Do they know you to be a truthful person or a dishonest person? Are you punctual or are you late? Are you a hard worker or are you lazy? Guess what? You earned every one of those characteristics. Whatever anybody thinks of you, you earn that. You've proven to them that you are that way. In fact, that's a question that I will oftentimes ask when I'm preparing a family uh, for a funeral of a loved one. And, um, you know, the, the eulogy is a big part of that funeral service. And I want to make sure, especially if they've asked me to do the eulogy, I want to get to know this person uh, as well as I can. And so one of the questions I'll ask you is, hey, what, what words come, come to your mind to describe this person? This is the person that's dead, right? We're going to do a funeral for a memorial service in three days. I talk to the family. What's the first, what, what are some words that come to your mind when you think of that person? I mean, what are, what are, what, if I ever do your funeral, okay, and I ask that question, what are people going to say about you? What is your mom and dad going to say about you? What are your kids going to say about you? What is your spouse going to say about you? What are your, right? What are other church members going to say about you? So a good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth, which I think leads into verse 2 here. He says, it's better to go to a house of mourning. Why, why is the day of your death better than the day of your birth? It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. In other words, what he's saying is it's better to go to a funeral than a feast, because at a, at a funeral, you have to stare death in the face and grapple with our mortality and our eternal destiny. I don't know what you're like at a funeral, but, you know, when there's an open casket, you know, kind of weird some people out. Like, I, I'll watch. I'll watch people like it's time to go up and pay your respects, right? And I see some people just either just like they don't even go up. They just make a beeline to the back because that's just weirding them out to have to look at a dead body in a casket. Um, other people will go up and hug, the, hug the, the family and then immediately just, whoosh, and they'll purposely like, I don't want to see that. Well, you know what I do? Whenever I go to a funeral, I try to get there early. If it's an open casket, casket kind of before anyone else is in there and people are just still coming, I'll walk up to that casket and I'll, I'll look long and hard into the face of that dead person. You're like, you're creepy. You're weird. Why are you doing that? Because I want to stare death in the face. Uh, it's a reality check is what that is. That's like, that's going to be me someday. Even though we're not going to have a casket and it's not going to be open and all that kind of stuff, right? Kelly and I have already talked about that. But the point is, I, I want to I be rocked into the, the reality. That's going to be me someday. Am I ready and how will I be remembered on that day? And, and, and the reason why I do that, because let's face it, most of us avoid thinking about the brevity of life and the certainty of death for the most part, right? We, we try to avoid thinking about that. And, and, and rarely do we ponder these realities. And that's why I think a funeral is just a God-given opportunity to be, to, it's a wake-up call for all of us. And I always try to make that appeal to people when they come is, listen, there's nothing I can do for that person in the casket, but I'm going to talk to the people that are still alive and, and, and the gospel can make a difference, right? And so it's, it's a reality check. It's a wake-up call. And it's nothing that we look forward to going to, a funeral, right? But it's something that we need to go to. Um, the point is that, that you don't, Typically, think about the brevity of life and the certainty of death when you're at a party or you go to a concert or you go to a movie, right? You're not thinking about the, you don't walk out of there rocked about the fact I'm going to die someday and I need to be ready. See, we learn a lot more from going to a funeral than from going to the fair, right? Seriously, think about it. You go to a funeral, you go to the Montgomery Fair, you're like, okay, I'll go to the fair. That sounds way more fun. Guess what? You're going to learn way more at that funeral for life. 
than you will at the fair. Because the fair will just distract you and entertain you, and you'll forget about the things that are most important in life. One commentator said this, Every thinking person must take into account the fact of death and should have a philosophy of life which enables him or her to confidently face the inevitable appointment. He goes on in the similar vein. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Now again, Solomon wasn't being morbid here and, and, and saying it's like wrong to laugh, it's wrong to have a good time, uh, you know, you should never go and listen to a comedian and, you know, and, and laugh hysterically like some of you did on Saturday night with Tim Hawkins, right? Um, but the point is too many people spend their whole lives laughing and cutting up and joking around and goofing off to the point they never stop to think seriously about the issues of life and death. In fact, it's a ploy. They, they're doing that intentionally. They prefer it that way because the harder they party and the louder they party, the more it numbs their minds and drowns out the sound of the grass growing over their graves. And so just keep the music turned up, keep the beer flowing, because I don't want to have to think about it. And it's when the party's over and they're all alone and the music gets turned off, right? That's when it freaks them out because then they're left alone with their thoughts. Someone said, said it this way, a little poem here, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. I think this is one of the paradoxes of life here, that that joy can coexist with sorrow. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. How is that possible? I love the Valley of Vision, the collection of Puritan prayers. And there's an opening prayer called the Valley of Vision, and it goes like this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. And then he says this, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars will shine. In other words, you want to really see the glory of God, you got to go deep, right? Deep into that well. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Point is that sorrow and suffering are very helpful um, they're, they're means of developing graces in our lives. They give us a greater appreciation of the sufferings of Christ. They enable us to comfort others who are experiencing similar trials. They, they're a pledge of our future inheritance in heaven. You know, with all this talk about funerals, one of my favorite texts uh, to preach at a funeral is Psalm 90, which talks about the the, the transitory nature of life, that life is just a fleeting breath of wind. It's like grass that withers. And, uh, and Moses was the one who wrote that psalm, and, and, and the psalm really climaxes in Psalm 90, uh, verse, or excuse me, in, in verse 12. Listen to what he said. He said, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of what? Wisdom. In other words, help us to learn to make every day count, to number our days, right? To make every day count for eternity. That's what the, the Solomon is saying here. Look at verse 5. He goes on to talk about things that are better. You want to know what's good in life? I'll tell you what's good in life. He says, It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of a fool. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. 
Solomon says, hey, you, you, want, you want to know what's good in life? Listen to rebuke. Even seek out rebuke, not praise, right? I mean, constructive criticism instructs, it corrects, it warns. Whereas flattery accomplishes nothing except give you a big head, right? Give you a false sense of pride. It's like the crackling of the thorns under the fire. It's all showy and, and noisy, but not productive, right? You ever grab some, some thorns and, and, and some brittle branches and throw it in the fire, and they snap and they pop and they make a whole lot of noise, but there's very little fuel. They're gone like that. They're very unproductive. There's little heat that's generated. Uh, the fire goes out quickly. And so Solomon is saying, listen, be wise and seek out serious conversations with others who, who are more experienced in life than you are and be open to their criticism. Listen to Psalm 141, verse 5. This is David. He said, let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. In other words, I want a righteous person to rebuke me, to, to uh, smite me, if you will. Obviously, in kindness, right? Speaking the truth in love. Don't be a jerk about it. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it, for still my prayers against their wicked deeds. And so he was inviting rebuke, inviting, inviting correction in his life. How about Proverbs 27? This is a familiar passage, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. And then it goes on. Faithful are the wounds of a what? Friend. But deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Listen, faithful are the wounds of a friend. I don't know if you've ever had those conversations. They're not fun, right? Where someone says, hey, do you consider me a friend? I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, here it comes, right? Do you know I love you? I consider you a friend. You consider me a friend? Yes. Well, then I need to tell you something. I'm going to wound you right now because I love you. And it's a faithful wound. And it's going to hurt, but it's going to help, Right? Those are hard conversations to have. But that's what Solomon says. That's good. That's good in life. You need that. It's better to heed the warnings of the wise and listen to the songs and the jokes of the fools. It's better to have your sins pointed out than to be entertained. I mean, seriously, if I ask you, okay, tonight afterwards, who wants to go see a movie and who wants to get their sin confronted? I think we're all going to the movie, right? Like, who's going to sign up for that? Yeah, I want to get my sins confronted. That's fun. But he's saying that's, that may not be fun, but it's wise. If you want to grow, if you want to mature, if you want to be more pleasing to me. And then notice verses 7 through 10. He, he lists some sins that we're tempted to commit during affliction. Again, this is all about God afflicting us, right? The, the crook in our lot. Um. What are some of the sins that we're tempted to commit during affliction? How about compromise? Verse 7. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the matter. And so in other words, you, you may give in to some kind of dishonesty or bribery. You act foolishly. You lose your sense of, 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 of equilibrium, uh, your ability to make good judgments. And so you compromise. He says, don't, be, don't compromise. How about impatience? Impatience. Verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. In other words, being patient is better than being proud. God approves of one and he despises, he hates the other. So don't get impatient, right? That's often what happens when we get in affliction, when we, get, when we face adversity, we get impatient. How about anger? Look at verse 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. In other words, when you get angry, you're just showing how stupid you are. That's what the Bible says, right? You fly off the handle, you blow up, you lose your temper. You're being a fool. You're acting like a fool. Someone has said this, that you can judge the size of a man by the size of what it takes to make him lose his temper. And then there's discontent. This is probably the biggest sin that we're tempted to commit. Verse 10, do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In other words, 
You become discontent. You start to live in the past and you harp on the good old days and wish you could return to the way it used to be because it was so much better than, well, you forgot it really wasn't much better then, right? So I think his point here is, listen, wise people don't spoil their lives by being discontent and angry and impatient and living a life of compromise. Wisdom, as Swindoll says, learns from the past, lives in the present, and looks forward to the future. And as a result, the wise can flourish in the midst of gut-wrenching reality. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. is gut-wrenching reality. This is reality. This is what life's all about. And we can thrive in that. We can flourish in that when we learn from the past, live in the present, and look forward to the future. Notice verse 11. He says, Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. So he's talking about, listen, if you, if you get um, an inheritance, a financial inheritance, you better hope you got some wisdom coming along with that, right? Because you could blow it and be very foolish with that inheritance. But then he goes on to compare wisdom to money in that it affords protection and security of sorts, right? I mean, in some sense, having money uh, protects you in life from certain things that, that don't necessarily need to happen to you. But wisdom is even better than money because it provides added protection from moral and spiritual damage. In other words, wisdom is, is superior, it's better than money because it preserves the lives of those who possess it. A person who avoids living a foolish lifestyle will live longer. If you do stupid things, say stupid things, right, you can shorten your lifespan, right? And that's why I used to always teach when I was a youth pastor in Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you, and you will live long on the earth. If you rebel against your mom and dad, right, and you go off and do your own thing, you are putting yourself at greater risk, right, of shortening your lifespan because you may be off doing some things which could potentially kill you, like you're out doing drugs, right? You're out drinking alcohol. You're out doing other things, you know, living on the wild side, and you could, you know, your life could be snuffed out because simply you didn't honor your parents, And so he's just simply saying here, wisdom is, is, is like insurance against the risks of life. And then we come to the, the climax here, what we began with in verse 13. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent or what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider, think. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. By the way, this is the first time that God is mentioned here in this section. Um, and he's saying the one thing a wise person will do is consider God's sovereign control over all things. Right? When he says, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider, uh, excuse me, at verse 13, consider the work of God for who is able to straighten what he has bent. What he's saying there is you can't thwart, you can't change God's will no matter how bad you want to or, or how hard you try. You can't. His decrees are immutable, and they're not subject to human manipulation. And so in His sovereign ordering of our lives, God has seen fit to, promote, to, to permit both times of adversity and times of prosperity. And God is the author of both, prosperity and adversity. And God has set aside in His providence a number of days in our lives that will be joyous and other days that will be marked by sadness, right? That's just God. That's how he does it. And our responsibility is to consider the work of God and to trust God on the good days and to trust God, what, on the bad days. Or maybe you could say it this way, our responsibility is to thank God on the good days and to trust God on the bad days. And God allows affliction in our lives because he knows that in times of prosperity, 
our tendency is to forget how much we need Him. I mean, if it was all prosperity, right, who would need God? And I know the ladies, uh, if you're going to the Bible study on uh, Elizabeth Elliot's path of suffering, uh, you may have already looked at these verses recently. They were fresh on your mind. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, um, I used to like sin and, and do my own thing. But now that I've experienced affliction, now I'm gonna, I obey better. I, I've learned how to obey through the affliction that you ordained for my life. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statutes. I've grown in obedience through affliction. And then Lamentations, you remember we looked at that a, a while ago. Uh, we studied the book of Lamentations. And in Lamentations chapter 3, here's the hope section of this very sad lament. Chapter 3, verse 37, Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? He says, It is good that I was afflicted. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. The point is this, that God mixes good days and bad days so we won't be able to fault him or figure him out. Again, look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Chapter 8, verse 7. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? In other words, you don't know what tomorrow is. tomorrow going to be a good day or a bad day? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know what my day is going to be like tomorrow. It could be a good day or it could be a bad day. God knows, though. Verse 17 of chapter 8. I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. In other words, God just wants us to submit to his sovereignty. That's the point. Don't try to figure out the future, right? Enjoy the good times. And in the bad times, remember that adversity has unpredictable and unscrutable purposes that are beyond our finite ability to understand. Ray Steadman said it this way. He said, given our limited, narrow vision of what life is, what business have we got complaining to God about how our life is run? Let us accept the reality that we aren't wise enough to know what is good for us. And then let us trust God to choose the elements we need. Talk about humbling, right? God, I admit that I don't know what's good for me. I don't know what's best for me. But you do, and I'm just going to submit to you. If prosperity is not always good then it is equally true that adversity is not always bad. Suppose hard times do come, what then? Many good and even great things can come out of them. And I know that you know that, right? That you had to go through certain trials to get you where you are today. Do I see an amen, a nodding? Yes, you had to go through, through, through certain trials to get you where you are today. And when you were in the midst of that trial, you wanted out of that trial, didn't you? But now that you're through that child, you wouldn't, that trial, you wouldn't change it for the world, would you? And so the point is, life is mysterious. And as Kidner says, it clips the wings of our self-sufficiency. I mean, life is just full of unexpected stuff So we might realize that we don't control the future. We're not in charge of our lives. God is. And even though adversity can be painful, we need to trust God that he's in control. He knows what he's doing. And he's acting in love towards you and be grateful for it. That's trusting God by Jerry Bridges, by the way. That's the thesis of the book. God's in control. He knows what he's doing. And he loves you. And you can trust those attributes of God, his sovereignty, his wisdom, and his love to endure any trial. When life is hard, even when life is hard, right? Or even when life hurts, I think that's what it's called. Even when life hurts, right? It's painful. 
You can trust God's sovereignty, His wisdom, and His love. Someone paraphrased verses 13 and 14 here in Ecclesiastes with these words. He says, look with wonder, look with wonder, admire, and silently wait for the result of God's work. The contrasts of life are deliberately allowed by God so that men should ultimately develop a simple trust and dependence in God. For prosperity and the good from God's hand, be thankful and rejoice, but in adversity and the crookedness of life, think, think, reflect on the goodness of God and the comprehensiveness of His plan for men. I want to close by reading a a section out of uh, one of my favorite commentaries. And um, it's, it's sort of a lengthy section, more so than I would normally read, but it's so profound. I thought, man, I was so encouraged. I was so blessed. I was so challenged by this. Uh, let me just read it for you and listen carefully because it really kind of brings this whole message together and this whole passage together. He says, uh, this is Philip Ryken, the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said, this passage began with a call to consider the work of God. As we contemplate the way that God works in the world, He teaches us the right way to live. We learn to praise God for prosperity and to trust God through adversity. We learn to live a God-fearing life that is free from wickedness and self-righteousness. These are lessons it takes a lifetime to learn. But maybe the hardest lesson of all is the one with which we began in verse 13, learning to look beyond our present difficulties and see the work of God, accepting all of the crooked things in life until he chooses to make them straight. And then he references Thomas Boston in his book, um, The Crook and the Lot. And he says he ended the sermon by listing some of the many reasons why God makes some things crooked. I mean, why does God make things crooked in your life? Um, These were biblical lessons that he had confirmed through his own experience of grief and pain, lessons about the sovereign purposes of God that can help us in our suffering. Why does God make some things crooked even when we pray for him to make them straight? Number one, the crooked things in life are a test to help us determine whether we really are trusting in Christ for our salvation. In other words, are we truly saved? Think of Job, for example, who was afflicted with many painful trials in order to prove the genuineness of his faith. Our own sufferings have the same purpose. By the grace of God, they confirm that we are holding on to Christ. Or perhaps they reveal exactly the opposite, that we have never fully trusted in Christ at all, but still need to trust him for our salvation. Secondly, whatever crooks there are in our earthly lot turn our hearts away from this vain world and teach us to look for happiness in the life to come. How cool is that, right? The imperfections of life should just make us look forward to heaven. Is his point. Suffering is part of our preparation for eternity. Consider the prodigal son who did not head back home to his father until he lost everything he had. When something in life seems crooked, remember that the day is coming when God will make it straight. And that's obviously when we're perfected in heaven, right? Thirdly, the crooked things in life convict us of our sins. The reason that anything is crooked at all is because there is sin in the world, including our own sin. The Holy Spirit often uses the crooks in our lot to touch our conscience, conscience, reminding us of some particular sin that we need to confess. Remember Joseph's brothers when things went badly for them in Egypt. They thought at once of their guilt before God for selling their brother into slavery many years before. It would be a mistake to think every time we suffer that it must be because of our sins, but it would also be a mistake to miss the opportunity that every suffering brings to repent of any unconfessed sin. Number four, the crooked things in life may correct us for our sins. There are times when suffering serves as an instrument of God's justice, as a punishment for our sin. So it was for David after he had murdered Uriah. The sword never departed from his house. When we suffer, it may be that as a consequence for our sin, we are under the judgment or the discipline or chastisement of God. He goes on and says this, The point of listing these possible reasons for our suffering is not to suggest that we can always figure out why God has put some particular crook in our lot. The point, rather, is that God knows why He has put it there. God knows why He's put it there. When something in life seems crooked, we're usually very quick to tell Him how to straighten it out. (laughs) Instead, we should let God straighten us out. Let God straighten us out. 
In his sovereignty over our suffering, God is hard at work to accomplish our real spiritual good, not just in one way, but in many ways. Therefore, we're called to trust in him, even for things that seem crooked. And then I love this. This is beautiful. Whenever we're having trouble believing that God knows what he's doing, the first thing we should do is consider the work of our Savior. Remember that our good shepherd once had a crook in his lot, a crook that came in the shape of a cross. In his prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked his father if there was any way to make Calvary straight instead of crooked. But there was no other way. As Jesus considered the work of God, he could see the only way to make atonement for his people's sins was to die in their place. So Jesus suffered the crooked cross that it was his God-given lot to bear. And he trusted his father, waiting for him to straighten things out when the time was right by raising him on the third day. If God could straighten out something as crooked as the cross then surely he can be trusted to do something with a crook in your lot. Would you change your disability or your disease? Would you change your job or your finances? Would you change your appearance or your abilities or your situation in life? Or would you trust God for all the crooked things in life and wait for him to make them straight just like he did when he died for you on the cross? The preacher who wrote Ecclesiastes said, consider the work of God. In other words, do not try to straighten out what God has made crooked. Our Savior would tell us the same thing. When you consider the work of God, remember my love for you through the crooked cross and trust our Father to straighten everything out in his own good time. Father, we thank you for just this simple passage that in many ways is obscure but so profound that who is able to straighten what you have made crooked. Lord, we thank you for men like Thomas Boston who thought deeply about your word and who endured great suffering with perseverance, looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of his faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame. And Lord, that we would not lose heart and grow weary in our suffering. And so thank you for this reminder tonight of really when things are bent, they're better because we know that you're using those things to perfect us in an imperfect world. And so, Lord, I pray you teach us to um, just submit to your sovereignty in, in how you designed us, how you wired us, Lord, what you've ordained for us in our marriages, in our families, in our jobs, in our finances, in our health. Lord, in our ministries, Lord, that we would just submit to your sovereignty and uh, that we would find great joy as we contemplate um, what you're up to in all of our difficulties and afflictions and challenges, that you're up to something good. And ultimately, may may we keep our eyes fixed on that crooked cross that was a great example of how you make all things straight in your way and in your time for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I hope that was as encouraging to you as it was to me. A lot of good truth there. And uh, we'll see you guys next week here, and we'll hopefully finish out the rest of chapter 7. All right? So you're dismissed. Have a good night.